point this up. But as Christians, uh, we can see in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus uh, things that, can, that, that convince us that God is loving, that God is for us, that God has not abandoned us, and that suffering is not an indication uh, that God doesn't love us. Uh, and in fact, if anything, Christians have uh, many, many tools to, to persevere through suffering as we trust God to use all suffering for His glory. And today we're going to ask the question, is Christianity narrow? Uh, and in all of this sermon series, I'll give you uh, two resources. One is by a guy I talked with once or two months. You may send me a cease and desist order at some point. Um, until then, I'll keep pointing you to him. Uh, this is a book called Reason for God, A Belief in an Age of Skepticism. It's by Timothy Keller. It came out about 10 years ago, so you can buy lots of used copies of this book. Really cheap. It's called The Reason for God. Uh, today, I'm also I'm using a book by a man named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was a, a British missionary to India for 40 years, and then he came back to the UK and realized uh, that though he thought he was a missionary in India, uh, coming back to have to live as a missionary in the UK, uh, and he's really helping. Uh, and so he wrote a book called The Gospel and Pluralist Society. It's really good, it's difficult, but it's really, really good. So that was a beautiful. Uh, we're going to be in the Bible today in Acts chapter uh, 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts is in the New Testament of your Bible. It's about 85, 90 percent of the way through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts. Fifth book in the Bible. In the New Testament, excuse me. We're going to start at verse 16. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Listen to God's word. The Bible says that while Paul was waiting in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. You see, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you were very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times of history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of the old poets that there, we are his offspring. Therefore, 
since we are God's offering, we should not think that the divine meaning is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard this, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the day. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Eumarus, and a number of others. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. And I grew up in the Bible Belt, in Fayetteville, just down the road. And when I was growing up, there was the question, what religion are you? Only had like one of five possible answers. You were either Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or maybe Catholic. And since I was white and upper middle class, I never heard people say Pentecostal or A.M.E. Zion. And that was not part of my worldview. But I can remember in the second grade interacting with the first person of a different faith. Uh, it was right on Hanukkah, and my friend uh, Lindsay uh, Glover's mom came in, and she made a latkes for us. And she uh, taught us about uh, about the, the candelabra, and about Hanukkah, and about uh, the dreidel. I can remember that was the first time I realized there were people in the world who did not celebrate Christmas. A little bit later in my life, I can remember in my junior year of high school, I met my first uh, friend. I made my first uh, friend who wore a turban. Uh, my friend uh, Sandeep wore a turban all the time. Even when we played pickup basketball, he wore his head wrap. It was only five or six months after September 11th attacks, and I remember it took me weeks and weeks to learn that he was not Muslim, but he was Sikh. And it took, to my untrained eyes, he looked like an Arab from the Middle East, but Sandeep's family was actually from India, where Sikhism was born. And in conversations about his turban, Sandeep taught me uh, that Sikhism is a monotheistic religion uh, that rejects the idea that any one religion has a monopoly on the spiritual truth. And that in some sense, all the great religious traditions are pointing towards what Sikhs call uh, the, the timeless one, or the one supreme being. I think that those conversations with Sandeep in high school started to open my eyes to the deep mistrust uh, among our culture of Christianity's exclusive uh, truth claims, Ex Christianity's exclusive claims about the uniqueness, the unique authority, and the unique position of Jesus Christ. And from that time, when I was in high school, uh, to now, which isn't as long as uh, some of you uh, have been out of high school, but it's still been long enough for me to see a cultural shift, the shift has continued uh, to be expressed in sentences like this one. How could there be just one true faith? Isn't it arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else? Surely, all the religions are equally valid and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. More and more Christianity, uh, Christians uh, have a reputation as being intolerant and narrow-minded. And so we come to this question, is Christianity too narrow? Is it too narrow for a pluralist society? That's the question we're going to ask today. Is Christianity just one truth among many? Is Jesus one teacher among many groups? 
We now live in this increasingly diverse and pluralist society where Christians are so well. <laughs> uh, but in Acts uh, chapter 17, Paul is in such a community, in just the same kind of place. Notice it says that Paul is waiting in Athens, Athens, Greece. You remember Athens from your humanities courses? Athens was the great city of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. It is the home of Western philosophical thought. At the same time, Athens is named after Athena, which is the Greek god of wisdom and philosophy and war. And so it is intimately tied to Greek religious life. In Athens, philosophy and religiosity, Greek polytheism, and mingle. And so it's a thoroughly pluralist society. As you know, under the Greeks, uh, under Alexander the Great, and then later uh, when the Romans conquered uh, the Greeks and under uh, Julius Caesar, there was incredible religious diversity. Not only do you have the entire Roman pantheon with gods like uh, Jupiter and Juno and Mars and Venus, but you uh, also have all these conquered people. You have the Pax Romana, you have this enormous empire, and when the Romans would conquer a people, they would fold their gods into the Roman pantheon as well, so that these conquered people didn't have to change religions, they just had to recognize uh, the equal legitimacy of the Roman pantheon, of the Roman gods. And so uh, you were welcome to worship whatever god you wanted in that uh, culture, so long as you recognized every other god was equally valid. It's in the place of that, uh, and we see this in Athens, uh, is reflected in the architecture. There's idols everywhere. He's talking about actual statues and temples of gods from all around the world, uh, from all different cultures and, and, and civilizations, have been set up and erected. And just to make sure all the bases are covered, we see that there's an altar erected to an unknown God. And it's in the midst of this deeply pluralist society, a society of many, many, many gods and many, many, many uh, different religious walks, that Paul makes radically exclusive, radically unique truth claims. You see, Paul says, you saw him say this, Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul claims that there's one true God revealed by one man and that all people everywhere are commanded to worship this one true God, this one Savior. This is a radically exclusive, radically proselytizing, evangelizing truth claim. A truth claim that forces everyone to hear to make a decision about whether it is true or false. A claim uh, that, that, that demands a decision. Instead of pointing uh, to what um, is, is uh, instead of pointing only to what is common between Christianity and all the other faiths uh, that Paul is inhabiting, uh, Paul points to several unique features. He points uh, to the uniqueness of Jesus, he points to the uniqueness of the resurrection, and he points to the uniqueness of, uh, of this God of grace who shows up in Christianity. This kind of claim that all people everywhere must repent and turn to Jesus brings up all kinds of legitimate fears in our society. All kinds of legitimate fears in Paul's day and equally in our day. And I want to work through a couple of them. I want to work through three specifically. The first is there is a great concern that the kind of claims that Paul is making, these exclusive religious truth claims, that this is the way, there's a great concern that this will lead to violence and intolerance and bigotry. 
there's a, a, a great threat, and there's a, there's a great fear that Christian exclusivism is a threat to peace. When I say Christian exclusivism, I mean that Jesus is the only way out to God, that he is, uh, he is the only one way to be saved. And that is a threat to peace, but that necessarily brings violence. As 120-something uh, said recently, I quote, religious exclusivism is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife and division and conflict. It may be that the greatest enemy of peace in the world is religious exclusivism. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth and that all other religions, and if all other religions continue to do so as well, the world will never know. Since the fall of communism seems the greatest barrier uh, to world peace is religiously motivated violence. We've seen the rise of religiously motivated terrorism, whether it's suicide bombers in Baghdad or the bombing of abortion clinics in the United States. So we must ask, with our skeptical brothers and sisters, do exclusive truth claims necessarily lead to violence, or should they? You see, I agree that a religion does create a slippery slope down which we can tumble towards violence and persecution and destruction, and towards the objectification and the, and, the, um, and the oppression of other people. And it goes something like this. Religions tell uh, their followers that they have the truth. And so feeling I have the truth, it makes me feel superior to these other people who must be foolish or naive or stupid to believe those heinous things about God. Not only does religion tell me uh, that I have the truth, but it also tells me how to perform that truth. It tells me how to live right. It tells me how to live um, correctly and good life. And so in an effort to live a good life, the first thing I do is I start to withdraw from wicked people so that they don't pollute me or drag me back or make me backslide. And then when I get separated from those people, I stop actually knowing any irreligious people. When I don't know a real pagan anywhere, when I don't really know an unbeliever very well, and I don't love an unbeliever very well, I start to characterize these people, and I mock them as stupid and immoral and evil and selfish. And once I think of believers and non-believers in these exaggerated terms of good versus evil, it's easy to justify some marginalization and then the act of oppression and then abuse and violence. That's what happens. And it leads down a slippery slope. We've seen this over and over again in the history of the world. Christianity, like other world religions, have erred egregiously in these ways. Immediately, one thinks of the Crusades and of the often repeated persecution of the Jewish people by Christians and of our treatment of the Native Americans and the Africans. Christian, Christians must acknowledge these gross injustices and cultural sins. We were wrong. And we are wrong today, everywhere, we persecute non-believers. In reaction to this kind of religious violence, in the last 150 years, in the 20th century, there were uh, great efforts to prevent religious division by, by repressing or outlawing completely a religion. The thought was that if we get rid of religion, we'll get rid of the reason or the, the basis on which all the division and violence exists. And so Soviet Russia and Communist China and the Khmer Rouge, and in a slightly modified version, uh, Nazi Germany, tried this. But the result, however, was not more peace or more harmony. It was more oppression. As Alison McGrath points out, in, the history of a in his uh, history of atheism, quote, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century 
were practiced by those who believed that religion caused incompetence and violence. End quote. CMN is not just confined to religious life, but to irreligious life as well. We might safely assume that the violence problem is not a religion problem, but a human problem, that any worldview must give an account of. And so Christianity, while being guilty of religious violence, nonetheless has within itself an explanation for that violent impulse and a cure for it. We see this in Paul's life, right? Consider the man who's talking in our story in the Bible. Paul was a violent religious fanatic. He was personally responsible for organizing the arrest and the torturous murder of Christians. He had faith worth killing for. He had a faith worth murdering for. He had a terrorist faith. But not anymore. Not since he met Jesus. Now he has a faith worth dying for. You see, in the previous chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are wrongfully arrested. They're beaten to within an inch of their life, and they're uh, held under a death sentence in a prison. And do you know how they respond? Do you know what they did to retaliate? They sang hymns and lullabies to the other prisoners. And then they converted and baptized the jailer. What could possibly rework out this early? He's not resentful, and he doesn't hate the Jews and the Greeks who were beating him and driving him from place to place and wrongfully arresting him. What could do that to a man who is, who is at his disposition, disposed towards retaliation and violence? Well, we see two things that are unique in Christianity that help us here. The first is that the uniqueness of, the, of Jesus Christ and his cross, and the uniqueness of the, the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. You see, the heart of Christianity is God the Son, Jesus Christ, being violently murdered in order to love and save those who are hurting him. When we should have been condemned, when human beings should have been annihilated, Jesus took their place so that he could destroy evil without destroying us. All religious violence is based on punishing the wrongness of others. But at the heart of Christianity, we see that Jesus doesn't get exact payment from us, but rather suffers our payment in our place and moves towards us in persuasive, sacrificial love. And Paul has been radically changed by this selfless, sacrificial, persuasive love, so that even when he's being beaten and bruised, even when he's being sentenced to death again and again, even when he's being tortured, he can continue to reach out in love to the people murdering him and say words like Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He knows that he uh, is no better off than the people in front of him. He has been radically humbled by the cross of Jesus. And so he's been moved to radical nonviolence, to radical suffering in the, for uh, Jesus. But he also knows there is a judgment day coming. He knows that they will be judged, and he wants to convince all the people to repent so that they might survive the, the coming judgment. And Christian nonviolence has to be rooted in a, an awareness of this judgment coming, or else I will have to be even now because I don't trust God to settle this world later. I will have to retaliate now in order uh, to make sure that you are punished. I remember the first time this hit me. It was right after the Sandy, uh, the Sandy Hook shootings. You remember this? When the shooter committed suicide? I remember sitting in Africa, reading it on there, and being angry, like cussing mad that he committed suicide, and thinking, man, that coward took the easy way out. And it took me 
hours to realize how little faith I had in the justice. But I thought the American court system would execute more justice than the God of the universe on the shooter, the shooter that said you can't send There's a man named Yugoslav Volk who grew up in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, and he uh, grew up in the midst of the violence um, all around him. I, some of you remember this. I remember uh, the sniper wars that took place all over Yugoslavia. He grew up in the midst of that. He says that his thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires the belief in divine vengeance, and that this is going to be unpopular with many Christians, especially Christians in the West. But he says you can only believe in a God who does not execute vengeance from the safety of your suburban home and your armchair. But that thesis will die in a scorched land soaked with the blood of innocence. It will die. The second threat that people are afraid of, my clock is absolutely wrong. 922. We've got two hours. We've got to hold on. <laughs> Uh, Christian exclusivism. The second real fear is that Christian exclusivism is arrogant and bigoted. That the rational, humble person, the rational and humble person, recognizes the legitimacy of all religions. And so there's this, there's this real concern that exclusive truth claims are arrogant, that are boastful, that are, that are uh, and, and, and that any humble person recognize that there are people who are equally smart and equally God and equally uh, good who believe in different faiths who will realize the legitimacy of all religions. And this really takes two primary forms, especially in the American South. The first is that uh, all major religions are equally valid because they basically teach the same thing. You may have heard this expressed in some form or another. I agree, and Paul agrees, that we need to recognize truth in other faiths. You saw Paul in this Paul in this story. He quotes Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Those uh, sentences that he says, uh, "In him we live and move and have uh, our being." That is a quote from a Stoic, uh, from an Epicurean philosopher. In that sentence, "We are his offspring" is a quote from a Stoic philosopher. Did you see that? Paul and Christianity do not teach that Christianity has a monopoly on truth, and that outside of it, people know nothing and teach only lies. But Paul and Christianity do not believe that all religions teach the same thing. Some would contend that all major world religions believe in the same God of love, and so their individual uh, doctrines are unimportant. The problem is that this view says doctrine is not important, and at the same time exerts a doctrine about the nature of God that contradicts all the major world religions. You see, Buddhism doesn't believe in personal God at all. And so you just whitewash them. Uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam believe in a God of love, and yet it's a God who at the same time holds people accountable for the belief and behavior. And so all of that God, all of the God, the God of the Bible, the God of Jewish faith, and the God of Islam, cannot be collapsed simply into a God who is only described by love at the expense of justice. And so instead of validating all religions, the idea that all religions teach the same thing actually ignores and flattens these religions and instead tries to proselytize them to a more superior, enlightened view of religion. Hence, it does the very same thing that it laments. Instead of giving respect to all faiths, 
and ignores all faiths and teaches a different faith that is that is its own faith. It is itself a proselytizing thing. And the second way that this argument wears itself out is um, that people say something like each religion sees only part of the spiritual truth. No one religious faith can see the whole truth. You may have heard this expressed in a famous parable about blind men and elephants. You may have heard it. There was uh, four blind men walking along one day, and they run into an elephant. And the first blind man runs into his face, and he grabs the trunk, and he says, This thing is like a snake. It twists and it curls and it wraps itself around my arm. It, an elephant is like a snake. And then the second uh, blind man runs into the side of it, and he says, It's not like a snake. It's like a wall. It's big and flat, and I can't get around it. And the other one uh, walks. Um, into uh, the leg and holds the leg and says, elephants are like tree trunks. And then the final one uh, grabs it by the tail and says, no, elephants are like big, giant paintbrushes. They each see only part. And the, the parable is told to say that each religious faith is like one of those blind men only getting a specific aspect of God, uh, that God is not like a snake or a tree trunk or a wall or a paintbrush, that God is bigger than all of those things. The problem is that the story backfires on its users because the story is told from the point of view of someone who has seen the whole elephant. Instead of teaching humility, it takes the arrogant position of being able to see the entire elephant and tell everyone else in the world that they are, in fact, blind. Leslie Newbigin, the man I just referenced from that book, uh, he wrote this. He says, quote, There is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all other claims to discern truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to the kind of knowledge about God which is superior to all other religions. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims that these different scriptures make? In order to say, the Bible only teaches a little bit about God, and that the, uh, the Vedas only teach a little bit about God, and that uh, the Quran only teaches a little bit about God, you have to know more about God than all of those books put together. So instead of being humble when you say all of them only know in part, you've actually made a very, very, very humble. Interestingly, Christianity is able this kind of uh, arrogance is, is achieved by self-deceit. But Christianity, interestingly, is able to honor the thrust of the elephant story while maintaining intellectual integrity by giving an account of how it is the Christians see or at least claim to see the whole elephant. You see, Paul expresses the fullness of this elephant story in a beautiful, compelling way. Paul affirmed that all religious faiths are attempts for reaching for God. You saw this uh, down Verse 27, it says that God has uh, appointed the times and the places in history where people would live so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Paul was able to look at the Roman faith and philosophy and find legitimate attempts to know and worship God. And yet he says uh, that, he's saying that all the other religious faiths that he's looking at are attempts to know God, that they are legitimate attempts to know God, and that they are directed in much the right direction. And yet, and yet, he says that the worship of God is characterized by ignorance. 
He uses that word twice uh, in verse uh, 23 and then again in verse 30. He says, you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And then second, he says that God overlooked this religious of ignorance until now. Paul and Christians know that in order to see the whole picture, someone from the outside would have to come from outside of history and outside of culture and outside of religion to reveal reality. Someone who was not blind would have to talk to the blind man. That person, according to Paul, is Jesus Christ, who, unlike other religious leaders, is not just a venerated holy man, but is worshipped as God Almighty, the Almighty One, the Timeless One, as my Sikh friend Step, as my Sikh friends used to call him. That Timeless One stepped into time and put on skin to reveal the reality of God and the reality of human beings. You see, the Bible doesn't just talk about Jesus being born, like it talks about every other human being. It talks using uh, famous words like Jesus came or Jesus appeared. Or as uh, Jesus' best friend John used to say, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, who is full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and who has spent eternity in closest relationship with the Father has made God known. Paul knows that he cannot claim all other religious faiths are ignorant without giving a compelling argument for how he has that kind of knowledge. That that is why Paul offers proof for why he believes that he's been given the revelation in Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus Christ has been proved to be God's appointed revelator by the resurrection. Paul understands uh, that it wasn't because Paul figured it out. It wasn't because he was smart enough or, or more spiritually adept enough. He wasn't religiously wise enough to do this. But that it was a gift. It was God revealing himself. You see, Paul lived a life where he thought he was religiously wise. And when he did, he was arrogant and he was violent and he was a hypocrite. But now, when he met Jesus, he was given a gift of the knowledge of God that he had to uh, receive in humble and in humility. He realized that he had to accept God on God's terms. That following Jesus was not about finding your way to God, but about, about God finding his way to God. Look how this changes the way the Paul talks. Even while he says all other faiths are ignorant of God's true nature, which is revealed in Jesus Christ, the God man who's been resurrected, who's proved the God man by being resurrected from the dead, Paul isn't dirty or bigoted. He recognizes truth and he points to truth in their scriptures. He celebrates their religiosity. He says, I see you're very, very religious. I admire your faith. Let me help you. And he points to me. He says, He goes to them where they are and as they are. He never calls them bad people or wicked. Christianity forces him to make absolute teachings, but it also forces him to do so in a humble way that allows for people to reject his message and even ridicule or persecute. And the last one, I'm going to kind of uh, hurry through this one a little bit because I think you'll understand it. There's this real fear among us that if we, when we say Jesus is the only way, that we are making an ethnocentric claim, that we're somehow being imperialistic, that we're somehow trying to export Americanism.
real believers. And the way the missionary effort um, was uh, was the missionary effort was accomplished from the 15th through 20th century um, was very materialistic. The, the mission Christian missionaries to Africa and the New World um, muddled Christianity and Western and, and Western Europeanism uh, together in a way that was not holy or right. But indeed, it's Christianity of all the world religions, but it's certainly the greatest degree of that world contextualization. It is a factual and a historical and a statistical fallacy to claim that Christianity is a Western religion. Christianity was born in a Jewish community in the Middle East, and then it shifted to a largely Greek population around the Mediterranean, and then it invaded a largely Egyptian and Ethiopian group in North Africa. Finally, Christianity spread through the especially irreligious barbarities of Europe. And finally, it invaded uh, the really brutal Anglo-Saxon and Celt islands in way northern Europe that we now call uh, the UK and Ireland. Then it shifted once again uh, to the North American continent. And from there, it has shifted now to the southern hemisphere of Africa and South America. Think about it. Right now, there are six times more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in the United States. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in all the United States and Scotland put together. Christianity is not American anymore. It is not, more, 40% of Korea is Christian. And China, uh, China's Christian population is growing exponentially. Each of these places worship in their own language. They read the Bible in their own language. They're led by indigenous leaders trained in local seminaries. Christianity is the only international, intercontinental, interlinguistic religion on the planet. Every other major religion has been confined ethnocentrically to a particular racial group, overwhelmingly so, and, or to a particular continent, overwhelmingly so. But Christianity is across all the continents and is divided across all the races. Christianity, while according to the uniqueness of Jesus as Savior and Revealer of God, is unique in its universal welcome of people from every country and language. Since Christianity is not about getting people right so they can get to God, it doesn't have to change people. It is about getting God to people instead. And so God uh, can come and, and become a country Christian without being culturally Jewish or culturally American for that matter. And Paul knew this better than anyone. Look who he's preaching to. Paul preaches a radical inclusive community where all people everywhere are welcome. All people everywhere. People, he, he goes to communities of people from different religious backgrounds. You see at the beginning of the story, he goes to the synagogues and he goes uh, to the Greeks. He talks to Jewish people and Greek people. He talks to foreigners who live there. He uh, it is a community, the church, Christianity, is a community of people from different degrees of religiosity. Paul goes to the marketplace, where there are people who have no, no religious observance at all, to the strictness of the moral adherence in the synagogues. He goes from the uneducated, he goes from the educated, he, he talks to the educated, that's the philosophers, but he also talks to the working class, people who are pushing apple carts in the middle of the marketplace. He goes to women and men. Did you see that? That should astound you, but the last verse names a woman by name. Next to a man of incredible standing. It puts this man Dionysus and this woman Demarius on the same plane. You know that women were not even allowed to join the Areopagus? They weren't considered worthy of it. Christianity. Not Christianity. 
think our way to you. We could not imagine a God like you. It is not possible for human minds to devise a God who is three in one, who would uh, suffer and die. All of these things violate the philosophy of the world. And yet you chose what is foolish in the world's eyes in order to redeem those considered foolish by the world. Thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus. Would you give us the faith to accept you as you are, as you uh, reveal yourself to if there's somebody hearing they want to accept Jesus today, they want to uh, stop pushing Jesus away with arguments about how the, the arrogance and the, the hubris of Jesus is to be the cross. They want to humble themselves and accept Jesus as he reveals himself. They can do so in the kind of Christian It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit you're a sinner and falling short of the glory of God. B, believe Jesus died to save you from your sins, and C, commit to following him for the rest of your life. You can do that with a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I've been running my life in my own life, following myself. But I believe that you love me enough to die on the cross, show me the truth about God and the truth about myself. If I commit to following you for the rest of my life. As forgiven and reconciled people, let us give.